The year is 1932. The Great Depression is still walloping countries around the world, and nearly a quarter of the U.S. population is unemployed. Promising to get the country back on its feet, Franklin Delano Roosevelt defeats Herbert Hoover in a landslide, carrying 42 of the country's 48 states. Meanwhile, in New York City, the Palace Theater, the longtime mecca of vaudeville, is converted into a movie house, sounding the death knell for what had been the most popular form of entertainment in the U.S. for nearly a century. And that year, Pulitzer Prize for Drama went to Of Thee I Sing, a song and dance satire of American politics that became the first musical to ever win the prize. My name is Jan Simpson. Welcome to All the Drama, a podcast about the plays and musicals that have won American theater's highest accolade, the Pulitzer Prize for Drama. Awarding the prize to a musical was a big step back in 1932. So that year's three-man Pulitzer jury, and they were all men, felt they had to defend their choice. Of the I Sing is not only coherent and well-knit enough to class as a play, they wrote in their recommendation, but it is a biting and true satire on American politics and the public attitude towards them. The play is genuine, and it is felt the Pulitzer Prize could not serve a better purpose than to recognize such work. It helped that the musical had been created by a quartet of artists who were widely considered to be at the top of their theatrical game. George S. Kaufman and Maury Riskin, who did the book, and the Gershwin brothers, George and Ira, who did the score. Kaufman was arguably the biggest name in the theater world. He was a one-time drama critic, a playwright, a director, and an original member of the famed Algonquin Roundtable, some of whose other members included Dorothy Parker and Harpo Marx. Kaufman was born in Pittsburgh in 1889 and had his first play produced on Broadway in 1918. He then went on to write or wrecked 75 more productions before he died in 1961 at the age of 71. The shows Kaufman wrote include such now classics as The Royal Family, The Man Who Came to Dinner, and the original stage version of Animal Crackers, which shot the Marx Brothers to fame. Kaufman nearly always collaborated with other writers, most famously with Moss Hart, who would commemorate the beginning of their partnership in his wonderful memoir, Act One, which, if you haven't read, you should. Kaufman first teamed up with Maury Riskin in 1927 when they worked together on the Marx Brothers show, The Coconuts. Riskin, who was born in Brooklyn in 1895, would go on to write screenplays, including the classic screwball comedy, My Man Godfrey. But in 1947, he became a friendly witness before the House Un-American Activities Committee. After that, he never sold another script. Instead, he became a professional conservative, expressing his views in newspaper and magazine columns and lending money to William F. Buckley Jr. to start his publication, The National Review. 
George Gershwin, who was also born in Brooklyn, but in 1898, and his lyric-writing brother, Ira, who was two years older, had begun working in Tin Pan Alley when they were still in their teens. And over the next two decades, they would write some of the most beloved songs in the great American songbook, including The Man I Love, Embraceable You, and just about everything from Porgy and Bass. But as the 1930s rolled in, George was looking for challenges greater than the loosely plotted musicals that were then dominating Broadway. So he and Ira liked the idea that Kaufman and Riskin brought them about doing a satire about a cheesemaker who tries to push the U.S. into a war with Switzerland to cut down on the competition for his product in the American market. A tryout of that show, which they called Strike Up the Band, flopped in Philadelphia. A heavily revised version that substituted chocolate for the cheese and sweetened the show's romantic subplot managed to limp through just about six months on Broadway. But the quartet had enjoyed both working together and doing a show in which the book and music combined to really say something. And so they looked for another project that they could all do together. By the time they started working on that next show, Of the I Sing, the depression had struck, and the public had become more cynical about government and more welcoming of their story about a guy named John P. Wintergreen, who wants to run for president of the United States. Wintergreen doesn't actually have a platform or anything he wants to accomplish besides getting an office, so he and his cronies decide to build their campaign around the theme of love because they figure that will appeal to everyone. The centerpiece of their campaign is a pageant to find the most beautiful girl in the country and to have Wintergreen marry her before the election. But instead, he falls for a campaign worker named Mary, mainly because he likes the horn muffins she bakes for him. Comic chaos ensues when the pageant winner, who has a loose connection to France, persuades that country to threaten war on her behalf. The Supreme Court is called in to adjudicate, and Wintergreen's running mate, a hapless sad sack named Throttlebottom tries to convince everyone, including himself, that the vice presidency really matters. The show is filled with some still funny wisecracks about how the political system works or doesn't, but I have to confess that the score sounded a little old-fashioned to me, but that was before I heard what some jazz masters had done with it over the years. Here's a bit of the title song from the 1952 Broadway cast album. There wasn't one for the 1931 production. Of thee I sing, baby, summer, autumn, winter, spring, baby, you're my silver lining, you're my sky of blue, there's a love light shining, just because of you.
And now here's a version of that same tune from the great Sarah Vaughan. Because of you Of thee I sing Baby You have got that Certain thing Baby Shining star And inspiration Worthy of a Mighty nation Of thee I sing Hear what I mean? The creators of Of The I Sing were nervous about how the public would respond to their show, but it was an instant hit. It ran 441 performances, the longest of any Gershwin musical during George's lifetime. He would die five years later of an undiagnosed brain tumor at the age of just 38. Ironically, George wasn't included in the original Pulitzer citation because the prize was considered a literary honor, and so the award just went to Kaufman, Riskin, and his brother Ira. But in 1998, the Pulitzer board made up for that mistake and voted the composer a posthumous honorary award to commemorate the centenary of his birth. The original creative team and cast of of The Icing produced a sequel called Let Him Eat Cake in 1933, but it dealt with the darker issue of Wintergreen's attempt to forcibly take over the government after he's been defeated in his bid for re-election. Hmm. The public didn't find fascism funny or entertaining, and the show lasted for just 90 performances. However, Of the I Sing continues to live on. It was first revived in 1952, but the public didn't take to Kaufman and Ira Gershwin's decision to rewrite some of the script, and that production just ran 72 performances. CBS broadcast an adaptation in 1972 with Carol O'Connor as Wintergreen and Jack Guilford as Throttlebottom. You can still find it on YouTube. In 1987, Michael Tilson Thomas conducted a concert at the Brooklyn Academy of Music that combined the scores of both Of the I Sing and Let Him Eat Cake. And in 2006, Encore staged a delightful production of the original show starring Victor Garber as Wintergreen and Jefferson Mays as Throttlebottom. It was great fun. Fans say the show is always politically relevant. Democrats invoked it during Ronald Reagan's administration. Republicans made comparisons to Bill Clinton when he was in office. And the show got done a lot around the country after the 2016 election of Donald Trump. I couldn't have found a better person to discuss of the icing than my guest this month, Lawrence Maslin who is not only a professor at NYU's Tisch School of the Arts, but also happens to be the editor of the book American Musicals 1927 to 1969, published by the Library of America. 
and he's the literary executor of the George S. Kaufman estate. Hello, Larry. Welcome to All the Drama. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm going to jump right in. Of the I Sing is the first musical to win a Pulitzer. So could you set the stage a bit for what was going on with the American musical at that time and why you think the board might have made such a major decision to honor this one? Well, I think there are three things that had a kind of confluence back in 1931, 32. Uh, The first is that the Gershwins, George and Ira Gershwin, who wrote the score, and George S. Kaufman and Maury Riskind, who wrote the book, were pretty much at the top of their game and the top of everyone's list in terms of who was doing adventuresome work on Broadway and the Broadway musical. But by 31, George Gershwin had written concert works. He was a, ra- he was a radio personality. He had a weekly radio show. George Kaufman was considered to be the finest comic playwright of the time. And the second thing is they had a bit of a dress rehearsal, which was a show called Strike Up the Band in 1927, Mm -hmm. um, which was a political parody that closed out of town in Philadelphia. Um, It supposedly occasioned Kaufman's remark that satire is what closes on Saturday night. But by the time the third component, which to me was the depression in 1929 came along, the Broadway stage was much more experimental. It was much more political. It was much more aggressive. So the stage was really right to put together an unprecedented musical about presidential politics. Hmm. Hmm. Because I was wondering why a show like Showboat wouldn't have been a more logical choice uh, for the Pulitzer board, since it seemed to deal with more serious issues. Well, I guess your show is dedicated to the crystal ball of the Pulitzer (laughs) Committee, which is something I wouldn't touch with a 10-foot pole. (laughs) But it may have also been that uh, Showboat was based on a previous source. So that may have somewhat negated its appeal. I mean, Of the Icing was original from start to finish. As, as their three political musicals were. I mean, there we, we think a lot about, you know, Oklahoma or My Fair Lady, what have you. We forget that many, many important musicals, Company, Hair, are original shows, and Of the I Sing was original from top to bottom. Huh. I hadn't, I hadn't thought about that. Have you ever seen a production of Of the I Sing? Oh, I've uh, seen several. I've worked on several. I've adapted several. I edited of the I Sing for the Library of America's uh, George's Kaufman collection. So I'm, I've done a radio show based on it. So I'm extremely, extremely familiar with that. Do you remember the first time you saw it? What, what did you think of it? Well, I read it a long time before I saw it because I used to work in a theater in Washington, D.C., of all places, called Arena Stage. And we had done a lot of, we had some success with George's Kaufman uh, shows. And so I think it was an election year. I honestly don't. Maybe it was Clinton's re-election year. We decided to stage it. And it's a big show. So we, we kind of scale down some of it a little bit, the orchestrations. Uh, and it worked like gangbusters. I mean, it was in the middle of a political election. And its humor, for reasons we can discuss, uh, is timeless. It was timely. It was timely for that period, but it was also timeless because 
There's uh, uh, political shenanigans. There's the media that wants to crucify the president. There's sex in the White House. There's uh, an incompetent vice president and on and on and on. Uh, in fact, when we did it at Arena, I asked Walter Mondale to write the program notes. <laughs> so we really tied it into the zeitgeist of, of the political life in Washington. That's what I was going to ask. Does it play today? Would it play uh, today? Or is the humor dated? Well, uh, to quote another president, it depends on what your definition of today is. <laughs> um, you know, uh, five years ago, I think it would have worked. I think the last few years have been so rancorous and so partisan and so um, outside the box of what is assumed to be, quote unquote, normal presidential politics, that I think the show would pale in comparison. And I think in a slightly more innocent time, it's not so much the jokes work or whatever, but the up from 1931 up until uh, 2008, um, or 2006, you had some norms. I mean, you had press conferences and you had State of the Union addresses and you had certain nominating committees and you had all sorts of things that were involved that were pretty consistent, repetitive models of democratic behavior. And I think any one headline from 19, from 2006 to the present would be much more anarchic than anything they came up with in the show. So maybe times have to settle a little bit and we'll get back and take a look at it. But that said, the the show itself is a wonderful look at how Americans viewed politics during the Depression. Uh, remember, this show opened and ran, and I think, I don't know the dates exactly, but probably even won the Pulitzer uh, before Roosevelt was elected. Obviously, it was a popular show. It had a long run, a particularly long run for that yep era. Um, it was an award-winning show. Was it an influential show? Did it uh, affect the way succeeding shows went about well, their Well, I business? think the answer to that is, is no and yes. I mean, it was so effective that it spawned the first and one of the very few sequels in the American musical theater, which was a show called Let Him Eat Cake, uh, in which the same characters reappear two years later, but they overtake the White House by starting up an insurrection and moving into the Capitol, uh, which is like hard to believe, right? Until it Oof, happens. Yeah. Um, and it was written in '33 when uh, the Nazis were were taking over Germany and Mussolini was taking over Italy. So it was a response to fascism in a way that the earlier show wasn't. Again, even though they have the same characters and in many ways the same uh, structure, but it didn't catch on. Um, it ran, it wasn't even recorded really. And, and a concert that I worked on uh, a month before um, COVID. So in, in uh, 2019, they did it at Carnegie Hall and it was a big success because mm. that show, the sequel, was much more a resonant of the Trump era. But I think in general, it's important to remember that the American musical, the American theater, Broadway, was so much more influential in the 1930s. Uh, you could say things and do things you could not do in Hollywood. So the idea of making fun of the president, it was the first full show. There were some review sketches and stuff to actually make fun of the presidency. And then in 37, uh, Kaufman and Hart, Rogers and Hart, Larry Hart, did a show called I'd Rather Be Right, which was all a spoof of FDR. And the whole notion of, I don't know, shows like Fiorello or 
even Hair on Broadway, but certainly uh, That Was the Week It Was or Saturday Night Live, goodness knows. I'm not sure they would have been possible uh, if it were not for Of the Ice Sing, which was really the game changer in that arena of writing serious, smart, political parody, satire, um, that dealt with the highest forms of government in America. Let me move to another question that I've been w- wondering as I've been researching of the icing. Why isn't Kaufman's name bigger today? I mean, he seemed like he was just Mr. Showbiz uh, for many years in the 20s, 30s, 40s, and maybe even into the 50s. But I don't think his name resonates as much today. I hear you. It sort of pains me to have, hear you say that because I'm also the literary executor of the George Kaufman State. But, uh, you know, he had his time. He was the most successful comic playwright of the first half of the 20th century. I like to say that if O'Neill, who won, what, three, four Pulitzers? I forget. Four, four um, yeah. Three at three and a Nobel or something, right? Four um, Pulitzers. Four Pulitzers. So if he was the tragic mask of American theater, Coffin was the comic mask of American mm. theater. And uh, Coffin won two Pulitzers as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other for You Can't Take It With You. I think one reason quite simply is, you know, the, the theater isn't quite as uh, prevalent as it was in, in his time. And those plays are pretty big. It takes a lot for a theater, Broadway, or even regional to put on his shows. And he didn't really like Hollywood very much. He wrote the screenplay to A Night at the Opera, famously, but many of his plays were adapted for the movies and not very well. I mean, you can't take it with you, won an Oscar, but it doesn't really resemble the play he wrote with Moss Hart. So um, I'm hoping that he can uh, kind of come back and have a have a bit of a renaissance, but certainly not unfortunately, in these days when uh, so many shows are being postponed and people are tightening their belts on Broadway. He was also someone who collaborated a lot. Did that have an effect that it wasn't just solely a Kaufman work in the way that it was an O'Neill work? I don't know. I mean, he wrote 52 plays and or musicals, and every one but one was a collaboration. But he wrote with Edna Ferber and Moss Hart and Ring Lardner and the Gershwins and the Marx Brothers. So he worked with some very impressive people. I don't think he thought a lot about that. He wasn't so interested in branding. He was really interested in getting the show up, making it topical, and moving on to the next show. So I think posterity wasn't, even though that's in the show, posterity is just around the corner. I don't think it was all that interesting to him. I think his interest was in what's the next project. Hmm. Well, this one um, of the I Sing is always going to have the distinction of being the first musical to win a Pulitzer. So that will keep his name uh, alive, if nothing else. So thank you for talking with us uh, about it. Sure. My pleasure. Always happy to champion great works of political satire in American history. And thank you for listening. I hope you'll come back next time and that you'll listen to all the other Broadway radio podcasts. And if you aren't already doing so, that you'll consider making a contribution to support our work, which you can do 
at patreon.com slash broadwayradio.